It is good to be in God's house this morning and continue in our study of um, Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4 today. If you have your Bibles, please turn there to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to cover verses 9 through 25, the, the rest of this chapter. And I'll admit from the beginning, that's a lot to cover at one time. And, um, and some of this is a little bit technical and complicated. I, I told uh, some of my friends at, at work on Friday, some, some of the other ministers that I work with, I said, this is one of those times where there's a difficult balance between technicality and practicality and and what is useful and beneficial and, and not getting too much in the weeds. So we're going to try not to do that this morning. But I do think there's some very important things here, even though they are a little bit technical. Um, I, I think it's very important for us in a practical way to understand. So before I even read, I'll give you a little bit of an outline so you can kind of see this as you go through the text. A little bit of an outline of, of kind of what is entailed in this. So verses 9 through 12 is what, what we're going to focus on in that is circumcision and baptism. So Paul brings up this discussion of circumcision in the midst of this, uh, con in the context of justification by faith. And so we're going to talk about circumcision and baptism in verses 9 through 12. Then in verses 13 through 15, spiritual Israel and faith. And then 16 through 22, faith and the glory of God. And then the last part, which will be our closing, uh, in verses 23 through 25, the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel. So let's begin reading there in verse 9 of uh, Romans chapter 4. Let me get to the right place. For some reason I ended up in the wrong place. Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? Or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How then what how was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham, or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, 
who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So I think you can just understand from just the reading of that, there's, there is some difficult um, ground here to kind of unpack. And, and just to be completely honest about it, reading it in the King James Version makes it that much more difficult. <laughs> if you have a different version, you may be helped a little bit this morning. And, and I'm going to, as we go through this at different times, you know, read maybe a different version just to kind of clarify some of the language. But anytime Paul gets in these discussions, it can be kind of hard for us to unpack and understand. If you're just reading your chapter for the day and you're reading Romans 4 and you've got five minutes that's going to be difficult for you to really kind of comprehend what it is that Paul's saying here uh, because of the language. When you start saying circumcision, uncircumcision is the circumcision because it's the uncircumcision, you know, it, all of that just kind of blends together and it's hard sometimes to understand. So I do want you to know why I split it up the way I did. If you notice in your Bible, if you have the little paragraph symbols in your Bible, um, if you'll notice verses 9 through 12 is a paragraph. Uh, 11 through, I mean, 13 through 15 is a paragraph. And then 16 through 25 is another paragraph. So Paul, if you have a problem with the way I broke it up, your argument is with Paul, not with me today. That's how he split it up. So that's how we're going to split it up. That's not always true. Sometimes it's helpful to take smaller sections or two or three paragraphs at a time. Uh, but uh, today we're, we're going paragraph by paragraph of Romans 4. So we said our first discussion will be on circumcision and baptism from verses 9 through 12. So I, I want to reread just that section, but this time I'm going to read it in um, a different version to maybe give you a little different understanding of what it says there in verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely, merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, still a little confusing, but I think you can kind of tell that that opens it up a little bit, kind of explains it a little bit. That's the ESV version. So then the other big question you may have is, Brother Andy said we're going to talk about circumcision and baptism. And, and so where's the baptism in the text? I don't, I don't see Paul mention that, so why would we mention that? 
Well, we're going to answer that question. So let me ask a few other questions to get us started. Why are we Baptists and why is that important? That's a big question. So why do you attend a Baptist church? Why are you not Presbyterian or Lutheran or Anglican? Did you know that Presbyterians believe a lot of the same things we do? They do. Doctrinally, they believe a lot of the same doctrine that we do. But there are some big differences. So why are we Baptists and why is that important? And why do many in the Reformed tradition endorse infant baptism? Well, the part of the answer to that is, is in our text today. So we need to have an understanding of what it's actually saying and also what it's not saying. So I'm going to kind of make the case for the other side first and then tell you what we believe as Baptists. So to many in Reformed traditions, there appears to them to be in the New Testament a correspondence between circumcision and baptism. And I'm going to be honest right off the top and tell you, if you just read this passage at face value, it does seem that there would be some similarities. So if, if you hear Paul say that the circumcision of Abraham was a sign and a seal of his belief and faith, and then you understand what we say about the New Testament, that when you believe and you come forward and make a profession of faith, what is the sign and seal of that? Is that you're baptized, right? So we're, we're going to go ahead and admit from the very beginning, clearly there's some, there's some carryover. There's some uh, connection between those two things. But there are also some key differences. So that's what we're going to look at. But, but that's kind of what's at stake and why it's part of this text. So just as circumcision, circumcision was given as a sign to the children of the covenant in the Old Testament, so baptism is a sign of the covenant uh, in the New Testament. And that's really the key that we'll get to. So Colossians 2, 11 through 12, uh, they'll point to this a lot. There seems to be this connection there as well. In him, which is Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been, been buried with him in baptism. So uh, that, once again, you see those two things in the same place. So what are we to make of this apparent connection? Well, there, there's a, a very elaborate argument made by those who are pedo baptists which just means those who baptize infants. Uh, they make this argument, and it's been carried on for hundreds of years. That would primarily be Anglicans, Lutherans, and probably the most prominent in our area would be Presbyterians. So um, the... Why, why do they believe what they believe about infant baptism? So the children of Christian believers today, they believe, they would say, belong to the visible church by virtue of their birth, and they should then receive the sign and the seal of the covenant, just as the eight-day-old infants of Israelites did in the Old Testament. That's their main argument. So why would Romans 4 uh, have anything to do with that? Why is it so important? What, what relevance does Romans have here? Well, it's, it really kind of turns on Romans 4.11. So Romans 4.11, let me switch back to the right version here. Romans 4.11 says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So what makes this verse so compelling for those who try to defend infant baptism? In, in verse 9, Paul says that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. 
that he was justified through faith alone. Then in verse 10, he points out that this happened before Abraham was circumcised. That's, that's important. How then was it credited? Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul answers his own question. He said it was while he was uncircumcised. So, Paul, so what he's setting up here, he's telling you, Abraham had faith, and then at a later point he was circumcised. So he was not circumcised and then had faith. He's setting up the, the chronology of those events. So the point is that Abraham's justification was not brought about through circumcision, which came later, but through faith then comes the crucial verse verse 11 he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of faith while he was uncircumcised so why is that important it's important because it gives a spiritual meaning to circumcision so those who believe in infant baptism they're going to say that this verse tells you that there is a spiritual meaning to circumcision that is like the meaning of baptism in the New Testament, a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. And, and as I've kind of already given away, we say that baptism is an expression of genuine faith and right standing with God that we have by faith before we get baptized. So let me go ahead and clarify something real quick. We as Baptists, uh, and, and especially in this church, we believe in believers' baptism. We don't baptize people unless they are believers. So you have to make a profession of faith to be baptized. We don't baptize infants. We don't baptize unbelievers. So we say that baptism is an expression of genuine faith. And this seems to be what circumcision is too, according to Paul in Romans 4.11, a sign and seal of the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. So if that circumcision and baptism signify the same thing, namely genuine faith, then that makes the argument more difficult. You can't just say, well, they have to be believers and infants don't believe, so therefore we don't baptize infants. If the argument was that simple, people wouldn't have been arguing about it for 400 years. It's not quite that simple um, because clearly in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign given afterwards, but it was given to, to infants as well. So this, this verse, Romans 4.11, is considered by most in that camp of infant baptism as kind of the, the key, the, the key defense for them of infant baptism because it defines circumcision in a way that gives the same basic meaning as baptism. Uh, we know from Genesis 17. This is Genesis 17, 10 through 12. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. <clears throat> so even though circumcision is described by Paul as a sign and a seal of Abraham's righteousness, he's also commanded clearly to give that to those who are eight days old, to his infant sons and to their sons all through the generations, even to servants who were not Jews by birth. So John Gill makes a, a very important distinction here as well. He says that's one evidence that, there, that even though there are similarities between the two, they're not equal. Um, and this one's real easy to get to. So who, who does circumcision affect? Is it all human beings? No, it's just the male children, right? So all the women would be left out completely 
of the sign of the new covenant if these things were an exact match. Um, we know that, that that's huge evidence then uh, right away that there are differences between these two things. We don't just baptize males, right? We baptize believers. Any human being that believes, uh, we baptize. So uh, John Gill rightly points out that this sign or seal in the Old Testament was for only, only for males. So if circumcision can be a sign of faith and righteousness and still be given to all the male children of Israelites who don't have faith yet for themselves, then why should not baptism and why cannot baptism be given to the children of Christians today, even though it is also a sign of faith and righteousness? So why are we Baptist? So I've kind of set it all up. I've given you their side of the equation, and I hope none of you are going to leave us and go to the Presbyterians now because I did too good a job of being fair with their argument because there are problems with the argument. But I do believe it's good for us to be fair with those arguments when we present these things to you because... You're going to run into somebody one day who believes this, and they want to talk to you about it, and I don't want you to be caught off guard. This is what they believe and, and why, and we want to be fair about that. Um, not straw men or, or, or you know, just a simple answer. Sometimes there's not a simple answer. So how then do we answer this? Well, the main problem with this argument is that there's a wrong assumption about the similarity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God today. That's, that's really the, the key to understanding this. So their assumption is that the people in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, that it's, it's almost exactly the same as it is under the New Covenant and with the, the people of God under the New Covenant. But the truth is there are differences between the New Covenant, which is why we call it a New Covenant, right? If you change something and there's changes to it, then it becomes a New Covenant. So there are differences between the New Covenant people called the church and the Old Covenant people of Israel in the Old Testament. And these differences explain why it was fitting then in the Old Covenant for that sign of circumcision to be given to infants of Israel and why it's not fitting to give the New Covenant sign of baptism to infants in the church. So it is those differences between the two that make one and the other different. So even, there, even though there is, and I think it's important, I think some Baptists don't want to do this, but I think it's important for us to concede that there is an overlap in meaning uh, in some, in, to some extent between baptism and circumcision. I think we see that in Romans 4.11 and especially in Colossians 2.11 and 12. But circumcision and baptism don't have the same role to play in the covenant people of God because of the way God has constituted his people in the Old Testament and the way he is constituting his church today and those things being fundamentally different. So... Paul makes this plain in several places. We're going to look at just two of them. So turn with me to Romans 9. Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So what's relevant in this text for our purposes is that there were two Israels that Paul describes here. There's a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. They are not all Israel who are 
of Israel. So they, those who are just the physical descendants of Israel, uh, not all of them, Paul is saying, are of spiritual Israel. They're not all the children of God. Yet God ordained that the whole larger physical uh, national people of Israel be known as, as his covenant people in the Old Testament. They all received the sign of the covenant and the outward blessings of that covenant. Yet he says all of them were not spiritual Israel. That's kind of hard to understand. But um, that, that's the way God dealt with his people at that time. So how is the church a continuation of Israel? That's how we have to answer this question. So is the church a continuation of uh, a large mixed group of uh, ethnic and religious national uh, identity or is the church a continuation of a remnant of true believers and therefore Abraham's seed by faith in God and faith in Christ? Well, the answer is the latter. We are a spirit-born new covenant community with the law of God written on our hearts and we are defined by faith. Don't let that get by you too fast. We are defined by faith. So we are not defined by who we were born or by whether or not we're circumcised or whether or not any other, other thing than we are defined by faith in God, by true faith. And so that's something that we need to make very clear. That is the distinction to be made between baptism and uh, circumcision. So Paul makes this answer clear in Galatians 4. I'm going to read 22 through 28 of Galatians chapter 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Notice the difference. One born naturally by human means and, and ways, the other born by promise, by a supernatural act of God. It's going to become really important later on in our lesson. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. <coughs> now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So that we, brethren, that is the church, that is believers. You could put those words in there uh, as substitutions and they would still be right. That is the church, that is believers, um, that is the elect, that is um, that same group of people. The church is not to be a mixed heritage like Abraham's seed. The church is not to be like Israel, a physical multitude, but in it a remnant of true believers. The church is composed of believers. That is the church. Now, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here that I probably shouldn't, but I need to, I think, especially in our day. Is the church in reality probably all true, 100% true believers? No, it's not. It's probably not. Um, that's, that's a sad thing. But as best as we know and as best as our judgment can tell us, we believe the church is made up of true believers and ultimately 
It is. <laughs> Those who are among the church who are not true believers are, are false. They're not really uh, truly a part of the church. But I think we forget that sometimes that um, in probably sitting in congregations all across North Mississippi today, there are unregenerated people who are going through motions. They're, they're being religious. They're doing religious things, but their heart is far from God. Their heart has not been changed. So it is, it is a, a supernatural thing. As I said earlier, that's going to be important a little bit later. Let me read to you how John Gill explained this part of this text. Where it says that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. John Gill says this, That is, his circumcision was a seal unto him that he should be so, which explains and confirms the sense of the former clause. Not a father of the uncircumcised Gentiles by natural generation, for so he was only the father of the Jews, but of them as they were believers, and not so called because he was the author of their faith, but because he had the same sort of faith as they. So the righteousness might be imputed to them also, Abraham's faith and righteousness nor their own, but the righteousness of Christ received by faith, which is unto all and upon all them that believe, without any difference of Jew or Gentile. So really what Paul is saying here is he's, he's hammering home in a very detailed way that justification is by faith, and because of that, it can be Jew or Gentile. You see that? If it's of the law or if it's of circumcision, then it's going to be limited to a particular group. But because it's of faith, it opens that up. Uh, to and, and we ought to be very thankful for that this morning, by the way. Do you know that? <laughs> because if not, we're in trouble because uh, everybody here, we're, we're Gentiles. So the people of the new covenant called the church that we've been talking about, um, the church is not based on any ethnic, national distinctive, uh, any you know, particular group of people other than the church is based on those who by faith, by grace, through faith uh, in, in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have come to belief in God and in Jesus Christ, his son. It's a continuation of the true Israel, the remnant, not the children of of the flesh so that's the difference in those the difference in those covenants which what that makes it uh, necessary for us to see baptism in a different way than circumcision because circumcision was given to all those who were born um, all of those who were born unto the jews in the old testament so therefore to give the sign of the covenant baptism to those who are just merely children of the flesh and who give no evidence of new birth or the presence of the spirit or of the law being written on their heart, or of vital faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Christ, is to contradict the meaning of the new covenant community, and it would be to go backwards in redemptive history. So we don't want to do that. So that is, in a nutshell, now there's way more. I'm just going to be honest with you right now. There's way more to that argument that we could unpack that for a whole two or three messages, but that's the short version. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. If you you know, know people that you've had those discussions with and you'd like more evidence and, and more, just definitely let me know and I'd love to discuss it with you. So that's the difference between circumcision and baptism. And I believe that is why that Paul brings it up in the midst of this discussion about uh, our being justified by faith. Now, secondly, we said in verses 13 through 15, and this one's going to be very short, that we're going to talk about spiritual Israel and faith. So, spiritual israel and faith 
So we just said that Paul lays out these, these two groups in Israel, those that were uh, of Israel, and then there's this spiritual Israel. So what does that have to do with faith? So then what is the distinguishing characteristic of spiritual Israel? That's the way we could ask the question. What is the distinguishing characteristic of those who are spiritual Israel? Another word to say that would be, what is the distinguishing characteristic of the elect? I think that's a very important question for us to know the answer to. Well, the short answer, and I'm going to unpack this, but give it away in the beginning. The short answer is saving faith. That is the difference. That is the distinguishing characteristic of spiritual Israel. If the promise is of the law, then faith is made void and the promise is of no effect because the law worketh wrath. That's Romans 1.18. So in this text, he says that he should be the heir of the world, um, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect because the law worketh wrath. For where, there no, where no law is, there is no <coughs> transgression. So what makes you an heir of promise? What makes you an heir and joint heir with Christ? Is it adherence to the law? Is it performing certain acts of the law? That would negate faith. That would, that's what Paul is saying. He said if, if that's true, then faith is void. And the promise is also void because the promise would be unattainable. You see that? That if, if, if there were acts that we had to do that were you know, based on our works or performing certain acts of the law or adherence to the law, that would negate faith and therefore also void the promise. So your baptism does not save you. Your family lineage does not save you. Being a good little boy or a good little girl does not save you. It's really hard for us to get past that understanding even though we affirm it with our mouth we still kind of deep down in us feel like at times well i've got to be good so that i can earn my reward well, that's not uh, the way that it works that's not the way that we are saved your baptism doesn't save you your your family lineage who you were born to does not save you all of those things cannot make you an heir of the promise or as our text says an heir of the world as part of Abraham's seed. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and as we will see in just a minute, to the glory of God alone, that we are made heirs and joint heirs with Christ. So Romans 8, let's turn to Romans 8 just to, and the reason I'm not taking long on this one, this is what we've been talking about for two months. So I'm not going to really belabor the point here um, on justification by faith. Romans 8, 14 through 17, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So the distinguishing characteristic of spiritual Israel is faith. It is saving faith or, or faith in Christ, true faith in Christ. You can say that in different ways. But we understand that. We've been on that subject a lot, so I'm going to move on very quickly. 
uh, to the next topic uh, in verses 16 through 22, and that is faith and the glory of God. So now Paul's going to advance his argument about justification by faith, and he's going to tie it to the glory of God in verses 16 through 22. So I'm going to kind of switch over to uh, the ESV version to hopefully give you a better sense of this. Beginning in verse 16, Paul says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, it's important, remember that, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of of Sarah's womb in the King James it says the deadness of Sarah's womb no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God but he drew grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness so there's a few things we want to point out in this and and uh, this is just very rich ground. Once again, this, this section could be multiple sermons in and of itself. So Paul says in verse 16, why is faith so essential? Why is it that, that we must be justified by faith? Why is that how, why God does what he does? And why is that important? Well, it's because of God's grace. Because God's grace is what gives us the guarantee. If it's not of grace, there is no guarantee because there's going to be a weak link in that chain. And so because it must be of grace, then it also must be of faith. Those two things go together. And I hope I can under, and explain that in a way that you can understand it. The only way that our eternal security, our eternal future in heaven can be guaranteed is if it rests on God's grace. If there's anything else that it rests on, then it is not certain. So grace is the free and unmerited work of God to bring us to glory, to bring his elect people to glory, to save us, to justify us, all of those things. Grace is that sovereign work, that sovereign omnipotent purpose of God to guarantee our inheritance. And grace is the ground of the guarantee of that to us. So, so let's tie this together with justification by faith. There's a beautiful connection here between grace, faith, and our having certainty of our salvation at the end of verse 16 paul says that grace guarantees the promise to all the descendants of abraham both believing jews and believing gentiles so you see what we just talked about about spiritual israel is really important who are the descendants of abraham that he's talking about when he says that grace guarantees the promise to all the descendants of abraham is that all of natural israel no it's not it is the believing, those who are believing, those are the ones that are called the descendants of Abraham, both of believing Jews 
and believing Gentiles, since he is the father, the way Paul says it, since he is the father of us all. In what way is he the father of us all? Abraham believed. Abraham had faith. And so because of that, he is the father of us all in faith. So then the rest of verse 17, he says that Abraham's faith was before him who he believed, even God. And now listen to this phrase. Y'all, everybody in this room knows what my favorite topic is probably to preach on and to study on and all that kind of thing. So I want you to think about that when I read this. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Think that has any connections whatsoever to salvation? Can God declare what is dead to be alive? Yes, he can. So we're going to get a practical example of that in a minute. The ESV version puts it this way. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's a, that's a great way to understand what this passage is really teaching us about faith. Now, why does he say this? Why does he call attention to this kind of sovereign divine activity? Well, the point is this. In order for Abraham to have a guarantee that he would inherit the promise, God must bring life from death and call into being that which does not exist. So in a very practical way, in, in, in Abraham's practical situation, that was true. But that's an easy spiritualization for us to see that this is sovereign, omnipotent, free grace. He's describing here that what he means by grace being the guarantee of the promise. Deadness must come to life and non-existence must exist. That is what grace does, and man cannot do this. Man cannot raise the dead. Man cannot create something out of nothing. Do you know that? I mean, it's amazing what science is doing, right? They're, they're doing some amazing things. They can take now cells out of one thing and create a completely different being. I don't know if you knew that or not. They can do that. But they got to start with something. You know, there's no scientist in a lab yet that has said, let there be light. And there's light. They, they cannot create anything, something out of nothing. So deadness must come to life and non-existence must exist. But God can and God does in order to guarantee the promises for his people. That is the meaning of grace. That is what grace does. That is impossible by human means and strength. So without the birth of Isaac, let's make this very practical. Without the birth of Isaac, the promise to Abraham would have failed, right? He would have failed. And so when, when you look at that from an earthly perspective, humanly speaking, that cannot and will not happen. Abraham's 100 years old. His wife is not far behind him. How was it described in our text? Abraham, how was he described in that? Uh, it, he was described, it says, um, which was, in the, and this is the ESV, which was as good as dead. He didn't consider his own body, which was as good as dead. That's, that's hard to hear, isn't it? <laughs> his body was as good as dead. And then it, it describes Sarah's barrenness, the deadness of her womb. So there's a lot of death being described in this situation. But without Isaac being born, the promise cannot be fulfilled. So there is, humanly speaking, an impossible situation that Abraham has been put in. Uh, human works and resources have been tried right he tried a different way and we are in current events today still reaping 
that to this day and, and will continue to. But human means were tried. Well, you know, we'll, we'll try to do it our way. That didn't work. But God says, no, the promise is going to be fulfilled and guaranteed, not by my cooperation with your human, human resources, but because I can declare alive that which is dead. I can declare that into existence which is not in existence. And so it is with every child of God. Our faith is a supernatural act of sovereign grace. So the reason I believe in justification by faith is because I understand what faith truly is. It is the act of a sovereign God through sovereign grace, and faith and grace are married together. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. So Paul explains in verse 19, And he being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about 100 years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb, the two human elements needed to accomplish the promise. They're both described as dead. If the promise is to be guaranteed, God must do the impossible. He must do what humans cannot do, give life to the dead and call into being that which does not exist. And so the supernatural birth of Isaac is a picture of how God creates children of promise, which also includes you and me today as part of spiritual Israel. So Paul says in Galatians 4:28, you brethren like Isaac are children of promise, not like Ishmael, born from what humans can do. Isaac was born by a miracle of the spirit, you were born by the miracle of the spirit. He was brought forth from deadness, you are brought forth from deadness. His faith was called into being out of nothing. Your faith is called into being out of nothing. So that is the meaning of grace, and that's why grace guarantees the promises, because it does what human resources cannot do. Grace not only gives us better than we deserve, grace gives us what we cannot produce. So it's not just that it gives us what we don't deserve. We, it's beyond that. It's something that we cannot do on our own. We don't have the ability. Uh, so the 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 sight of glory the hearing of divine truth the the reception of spiritual blessings all of those things it all comes into being by the sweet and sovereign grace of god and that is why the promise is certain so why did i link this why did i say faith in the glory of god when i when i started this there's a that's a huge part what we just talked about but the answer is in verses 20 and 21 so in verse 20 he says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So what is the defining characteristic of the faith of Abraham that staggered not at the promise of God, was strong and was fully persuaded that God was able to deliver? What, what does it say is the defining characteristic of that? He was giving glory to God. God got the glory in, in the way that Abraham believed, and, and it was all of God. Justification by faith gives all the glory to God. The righteousness of Christ imputed to the people of God by faith through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. There is no room for the boasting of man. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Sometimes we leave that last part off a little too often. The reason that, that salvation is the way that it is is because it gives all glory to God. And, and so we, we as a people, 
The reason we believe what we believe is because it gives God all the glory. There's no room for boasting in men that, well, I did my part, or Christ got it halfway and I finished it out, or any of those kinds of things. There's no room for that with the way that the Bible tells us that God saves his people. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Do you see that last phrase, how that's given glory to God? He believed that God was able to do what he said he was going to do. That gives God glory because he is who he says he is. And we believe that he's able to do that, which he has said he is going to do. Now, we'll close in these last verses, verses 23 through 25, I told you would be uh, the, the title of this section we said is the good news of the gospel. And I think this is really important because I warned you in the beginning, some of this is kind of technical. I think it's beautiful, by the way. Just because it's technical doesn't mean there's not a lot of beauty in it. But Paul, at the end of this chapter, he says, I want to make sure that you understand something about all these different things that I'm teaching you. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In the King James Version, it says it this way. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So all that you've heard today, and in the past few messages, from this great fourth chapter of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, is not an academic lecture. It's not. It's not a history lesson about what happened to Abraham in the Old Testament. He, Paul says... This was not written for his sake alone, but it was written for you. If you're a believer, it was written for you. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. It's very practical, very needed, very um, exciting message to truly understand. The truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, is a message for you and me today. Paul says it was not just written for Abraham, but for us also repent and believe and the promise is to you now we get nervous when people say that as primitive baptists i'm just going to be honest about it i've actually had people ask me you 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 said that that people should repent of their sins and believe in christ and i said yes i did because <laughs> you know what the apostles said they said repent and believe now i've clearly laid out and i think this passage clearly lays out Am I telling you to, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and believe in Christ and exercise your own faith? No, clearly, clearly not. The, what, what is it described as in our passage? Deadness. That's what it's described as. But if the Spirit of God reveals to you who Christ is and reveals to you that you're a sinner, there's a response that is proper to that. And that response is to repent and to believe in Christ, to come to Christ, to make that public. To, to go public with what God is doing in secret in your heart. Uh, that is what you're to do. That is what God calls us to do. And so I have no problem saying repent and believe and the promise is to you because Christ was delivered for our offenses and is raised for our justification. 
Uh, I, I want to just touch on in closing that last phrase because that might be confusing. You say, well, you say justification is by faith, and now he says uh, we are for our, he was raised again for our justification. So now we're, what does the resurrection of God have to do with, with justification? Well, this is it, and this is a real simple answer. If Christ remained in the tomb, what does Paul say about that over in Corinthians? He said if, Paul, if, if Christ remained in the tomb, then your faith is dead, and our preaching is in vain, and, and none of us are going to heaven, and we're not saved. Because that was the sign and the seal that God accepted the meritorious work of Christ on your behalf so that we can be saved, so that we are justified by faith. So we are justified, uh, and, and, and he was raised again for our justification simply means that because Christ was raised from the tomb, we can be justified. God has accepted that sacrifice, which then... Because of that, our sins are forgiven, and not only that, but as we've been studying through faith, His righteousness is imputed to us by faith. What an amazing good news of the gospel. If, if you've never made a public profession of faith, I urge you to do that today. Uh, if, if the Spirit has impressed upon you your need for a Savior, uh, your fallenness and your sinfulness before Him, then repent of your sins and follow Him in faith today.